Hi, and welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, Executive Vice President at Hadar, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. So we're going to tackle a question today that is, is certainly not simple, and I would say it's a question that I personally think about all the time. I imagine many people think about it all the time, um, but it's one that I struggle with, actually. So I am, I'm pretty sure there's not going to be a yes or no clear-cut answer, but I'm really looking forward to hearing some ways to think about it and attack it. The questioner writes, I know that as Jews, we have an obligation to give tzedakah and to care for those in need. At the same time, life is expensive, and Jewish life is especially expensive and requires significant personal finances. Is it wrong to save money when others are suffering? In other words, am I allowed to have any savings when there are people in need? It's an intense question. Yeah, I think we all sort of know the extremes. Like, of course, we should have some savings. And of course... We we can't give no tzedakah, but how on earth are we supposed to figure out wh- what falls in between? Yeah, you know, I do want to just give place of mention to the notion that maybe the extremes are not even clear, meaning I think it's a philosophically defensible position to say, I don't know, you're not allowed to have any savings at all Yeah, <laughs> in the sense of, you know, you go to the extreme case of that famous case that appears in the Sifra and in the Talmud about two people with one jug of water going through the desert and, uh, you know, one of them, only one of them can make it on the amount of water there and a debate, like, do you have to split it or are you allowed to keep it for yourself? And, you know, there is a position there. It's not the position of Rabbi Akiva that becomes do- dominant, but there's a position there that you got to split the water and both die. <laughs> Um, because who are you to say that you're any better than the other person? And kind of a fundamental, thoroughgoing commitment to human equality is no one deserves this more than anyone else. Rabbi Akiva undoes that and says, your fellow's life has to be with your life. That is to say, you kind of start taking care of yourself and then you extend outward. But even Rabbi Akiva's position is potentially about not letting yourself die. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, he's saying, drink the water you need. Drink the water you need to survive. But you can't deduce from that source what Rabbi Akiva thinks about maybe distributing all your wealth such that you're poor. Right. That seems like actually a very low bar. That's when you right. say the extremes are not obvious, it's it's not even obvious to that story whether you have to have what you need to survive. That's right. Ben Petura, who is Rabbi Akiva's interlocutor there, thinks, I don't know, sorry, can't give it to you, even if it's your water. Yeah. Right. <laughs> can't give it to you because the other person's life is just as valuable. So that's not going to be where we're going to end up, either conventionally in terms of where anyone is going to live in the world, but even in terms of the sources that I think we'll explore. But it is important to give it an honored place as a potential response even if only then appreciate the significance and non-obviousness of ending up where we end up. Yeah, I feel like I do know people, individuals who are so committed to justice and tzedakah that that is not obvious to them. And I think it can be actually a very hard and painful way to move through the world because they really are able to see the need 
And it's not obvious to them that they should justify that they should have something that somebody else doesn't. Um, and and there is almost always somebody who has less than you, no matter who you are and how much you have. Um, and it's it can be actually a very painful way to view the world. It's it's also very moving. You know, it's moving even just to know people who see the world that way. But also, I think it's hard. Right. And look, there's serious moral philosophers like Peter Singer who will basically tell you. Basically, all discretionary spending is indefensible if there's any hunger in the world. And I don't know if we'll get to clarity on that question just from some of the sources that maybe we can pull out on this. But I, I do want to take it seriously, right? I don't think it can easily be dismissed as, well, you would never say that. You, you might. You might say <laughs> you can never go to a movie. You can never go to an amusement park. You cannot have anything in your bank account beyond the you know most basic things that you need to make it through the day. Um, that's not where I think our tradition will ultimately point us, but uh, it's out there, and, and I think we'll have to hear some different voices. Maybe let's start with the scary part that pushes in that direction. <laughs> and it starts with the Torah. The Torah in Dvarim, in Parshat Re'eh, chapter 15, uh, just kind of says part of it out directly. It says you're going to have poor people in your society, in the land that God's giving you. Do not, uh, you know, toughen up your heart and don't clench your fist from the person who is poor. And, you know, just like going beyond the metaphor there, actually, those images are very much kind of an image of don't hold back. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily directly translate it to don't have savings yet. Yeah. But don't say, well, I, I don't want to give that to you. That's mine. Right. It is literally what we do. Uh, you know, again, we're in a New York City context yeah. where we're recording this podcast where you can walk past a person in the street, literally sitting in the street and feel the impulse to literally like hold your hold your purse closer. Right. And the Torah comes along and says, oh, you've got to, and with the double formulation, open, open your hand. Like, I know you want to clench it. I know you want to hold back. You got to open it up. And then I think the piece that feels even stronger, how much do you have to give that person? You've got to make up everything that they are missing. Mm -hmm. uh, this person is short on something. You, I think the picture here is right there on the spot have to give that to them. The, the Talmud plays that out. It says that which the person is missing, you have to even provide them with a horse on which to ride and a servant to lead it, okay? Now, that implies on some level this is a wealthy person who once had that level of... Because that's what they're lacking. That's what they're lacking. That's what it seems to be playing on. We'll come back to that in a second. But just sort of take that in for a minute. It's like, this person doesn't have a car. You have to buy them a car, right? In other words, we're not in an abstract way yet addressing the question of savings. But there is sort of a thing, yeah, I don't know, you might have to shell out $20,000 to help this person. That's yeah, what a horse or, costs. Or it feels to me like, maybe it's like you have to buy them a car. It also feels... You could read it maybe as like, you should give them the treatment you would want. Um, I feel like that image for me evokes the story of Mordechai and Haman and, and the flip there of I designed it for myself, but then I gave it to somebody else, not, not because he wants to. Um, but the idea of, you know, if I'm walking into a store and I think, oh, I'll buy something for the hungry person on the street, and I bought myself a $12 
deluxe sandwich, I shouldn't buy that person a bagel. I should buy two $12 deluxe sandwiches and make sure that I'm giving them what I would want and not sort of what I think would be appropriate for them. Yeah, right. There's, a, I think there's a lot of ways there, like psychological and otherwise, to kind of understand what is that requirement getting at. Uh, I think I want us just not to lose the fact that it's a lot of money. Yeah. Right? Um, and there's some notion of you see the gap, you must respond to it. And then there's stories there in the Talmud and Ketubot that talk about uh, Hillel HaZaken and the uh, certain people in the Galil HaElyon in the Upper Galilee who, you know, found people who were poor, who had once been wealthier, and they bought them horses or they made sure they had like a big quantity of meat every day. Mm -hmm. And you have a picture here of like beyond subsistence, you are meant to like bring people back to like full dignity. and. There's just something there on the level of investment uh, and expectation that is high. Like, there's no hedge in this source of, oh, maybe you don't have enough. Like, maybe, you know, it'll prevent you from having a horse. That doesn't seem to be the focus. It doesn't say buy them a horse if you can afford to. Right. Now, we'll get to that. But in this source, it's not saying that. Yeah. Right? And I want us not to lose the part of there's an element of just listening to the Torah. Like, your job, if you have resources, is to distribute them. Mm -hmm. Don't clench your fist, open your hand. That's what you're meant to and do. And also that the determiner is actually people's need um, as opposed to your ability. Good. So that's, and that's helpful because that creates one of the caveats, as it were, or boundary conditions. Uh, the Talmud, when laying out this theory of de machsoro, giving them enough as they need, says, well, we do learn a limit from that. You are commanded to sustain this person. The iata mitsuve alav le oshro, but you are not commanded to make them rich. Meaning, de machsoro means the full amount that they are lacking to get them back up to some level. Might be they were at a level that, you know, they expect something or without that they don't have their dignity. Um, this comes up all the time, right, in terms of social welfare programs and other things. About, well, how could someone have a smartphone if, you know, they otherwise don't have X amount of resources? Yeah, or maybe... why is unemployment check tied to what you were making before? Correct. As opposed to, well, everybody who's unemployed is making nothing. So they, shouldn't they all get the same check? Correct. And the response to this text would be, well, we don't just go by, you know, what's like a stale piece of bread and a bowl of soup to keep someone alive. There's some picture of what is it to live a life and to have dignity. But it's not beyond that to the level of, I have to go around the world and make everyone rich. That's the first inkling we get of some break on an otherwise very comprehensive imperative of, you got to restore people and make them whole. Although the thing that's striking, even in that break, is it's still determining how much you should give based entirely on the other person's Correct. axis. And I would say, I think when I think about broadly how we do charity across the country, most people aren't doing charity based on need. They're doing it on what they have to give, with the exception, I think, of what we saw in 2020 in the pandemic, that actually there was an uptick in charity of people who felt the need is greater in the, you know, the world's need is so great right now. I need to give more than I than I would normally. Um, and that that I think was sort of a unique moment. We may even be past it. I don't know how much of it endured, but actually of people saying, oh, there's greater need and therefore I should give more. Um, you know, certainly in the circles that I'm running in, people are giving to Ukraine from a place of 
I, I don't know, maybe they're reallocating what they would have given elsewhere, but there is a sense of, oh, the need became so much greater. I need to give more. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So let's explore a couple of texts that are a little more explicitly about setting some limits, putting brakes on, giving perspective, you know, one way or the other on this obligation to give and now get a little bit more into savings, right? Like, do you, do you have any right or responsibility to hold anything back? When the Torah is saying, unclench your fist, should we read that as a hard, everything you have should be given away? Or it's just a way of saying, hey, you can't hold everything back. Uh-huh. You know, you're, you're allowed to hold something back, but, you know, don't don't hold everything back. So Rabbi Akiva, we mentioned him before. We're like uncertain, like, how to, okay, he doesn't think you have to die with the water. But what does he think about savings, um, you know, or monetarily holding back? So he makes one very important statement. He says, I would rather you turn your Shabbat into a weekday than become dependent on other people. Huh. Now. That seems extreme. Right. So taken as like a halachic statement, am I supposed to violate Shabbat? Am I supposed to like take a job if the only job I can have, I have to work on Saturday rather than to be on yeah. public funds? Some people have tried to invoke Rabbi Akiva in uh, particularly dire circumstances to maybe make an argument like that. I think more likely he is making a rhetorical point here. In other words, what's the most outrageous thing you could imagine? It would be kind of erasing Shabbat, like on a religious level. That's the most um, outrageous thing you can imagine. I'm telling you, go to extreme lengths on a rhetorical level to make sure you are self-reliant. You are able to be self-sustaining in some way. Um, make major strategic decisions in your life such that you don't have to add yourself to the roles of the needy. That seems to be the claim that he's making. You know, on some level, that sounds totally simple to say. Make sure you're providing for yourself and be responsible. And If you can. <clears throat> if you can. In other ways, that's really not simple. You know, I think especially about as people set out on career paths, you know, where you say, great, I could go into business and try to make as much money as I can so that I can pay for, you know, kids to go to day school. Or I could become a teacher, you know, and teachers are sort of historically underpaid. And I know that I'm going to need scholarship in order to live the life I need. But that's the choice I want to make. Is that is that a wrong choice? Is that what Rabbi Akiva would have us believe? Yeah, I think it's a, again, I address the rhetorical question of the first part of the statement, making Shabbat a weekday. You can ask a rhetorical question on the other side. What does it mean not to become dependent on others? Like the notion that, okay, I work for a nonprofit. I have to raise my salary or there's grant money that I get. Like, is that being dependent on other people? In a certain sense, yes, right? Yeah. But on the other hand, well, everyone's dependent, right? Even people who are in a business and are making a profit, like they depend on people to buy their stuff. So I don't think it's a call for a radical independence from other people or sort of withdrawal from society. It seems to me it's more on the level of, um, you know, particularly in Rabbi Akiva's context, he's really, I think, talking about if you have the ability not to be uh, on the tamhui or the kupa, these sort of daily and weekly distributions of the most basic charity, um, you, you should use what skills and resources you have not to do that. So on the level of, okay, what profession should I go into? I think that raises all the questions you're raising. But maybe the answer Rabbi Akiva would say is, no, just have a profession. All I'm saying is yeah. 
don't don't just go to walk into the welfare office without trying. Right. Or debates, I think, that we have. It's not the place for us to get into it here. But, you know, when, when is it appropriate for people to devote their life to study of Torah or other intellectual pursuits and have no, you know, income that they're taking in or no way in which they're potentially, you know, plugging into the economy, society, other things that just enable them to be self-supporting. It's all super complicated. And I don't think this is the place for us to get into kind of the the economics of it all, uh, you know, what each person's contribution is. But as an ethos, I think what's important for our question is, Rabbi Akiva, I think, would say there is a legitimacy and an importance to looking out for your own financial well-being as opposed to not looking out for it at all. You might think that this question only has two angles. There's what I have and what I should give. And actually, Rabbi Akiva is broadening even the lens to say, there's also how did you get what you have? <laughs> you know, there's there's how did you get what you have? And then what do you do with it once you have it? Um, which is just, a uh, you know, another element of savings, obviously, that we haven't might not consider without his perspective. Yeah. And if that's like an ethos uh, kind of direction, it's other sources that try to quantify this more, right? Try to actually get into numbers of like, how much should I give yeah, away? Yeah, let's All get right? some real information. Yeah. Here. So I'll give you just two sources that are kind of in conflict, but I, I think they're they're pointing us in kind of similar direction. The first is, it appears actually a number of times in the Talmud. Hamivazvez al-yevazvez yoter mechomesh. Sounds so, fun to say. Yeah. Tongue twister of someone who is handing out stuff for the poor should not give out more than a fifth, not more than 20%. A fifth of what? Not clear. Is it the <laughs> income? Is it your estate? We'll get to that in a minute in another source. For now, it seems though very clear, there's some version of hold back 80%, mm -hmm. right? In other words, wh whatever it is that, that, that that's of, <laughs> there's 80% that's being held back. And that seems to be downriver, as it were, of Rabbi Akiva's ethos of, you've got to give to tzedakah, you've got to support people, but we don't want us getting into a situation where you then just become another person who's needy. We're trying to leverage your resources to pull more people up, but you got to stay above water, uh, right, while you can. Another source that's a, a different number, Rabbi Zera in Bavakama says, when you're talking about staka, which he just calls mitzvah, um, might extend to other mitzvot also, but in early uh, in early sources with connection to Eretz Yisrael, the word mitzvah actually, interestingly, usually just means tzedakah. It's like mm -hmm. the ultimate mitzvah. That's interesting. And he says ad shlish, up to a third. The plain sense there is probably just he disagrees with that 20%, yeah. 33%. But the Talmud then asks on that, my shlish, exactly your question, a, a third of what? Yeah. And then they say, well, if you mean a third of your house, meaning your estate, right. all of your assets, well, then, when three tzedakah opportunities come along, you'll, you'll be, be gone. And their rhetorical assumption is, and that is unacceptable, right? Uh -huh. Just to go back to where we started, I don't think it's crazy philosophically to say, I don't know, I'm a messenger of God on this earth. I was given resources. Three poor people came along. Apparently, God may want me to be indigent. I'll worry about tomorrow what I'm going to get. My job right here is I see someone in need. I got to provide it. Here you see the Talmud 
pulling back from, I think, that philosophically, if not practically, reasonable suggestion and saying, that can't be. And so that's a third in each person, because I would have thought that I would read that as a third and then a third of what's left. And right. then a third, Compounding. Which also I thought you were going to say is untenable because you will, you know, when when you're using fractions instead of dollar amounts, you'd get a lot poorer pretty quickly. Yes. I don't want to traumatize our listeners and take them back to high school calculus and limits and derivatives and all of that. But yeah, you would have a different kind of calculus and it's not clear not clear where the Talmud comes out on that question. We just get a vision, though, of it can't be you would liquidate all your assets, mm -hmm. right? And we get that vision actually hand in hand with this statement of, yes, a third. That's what we mean. And then we have to figure out how to apply that. But the concept is not give $10. <laughs> the concept is actually, yes, if that horse costs them a third, you know, that's reasonable. So the Talmud there ends up rejiggering that, as it often does, and says, no, 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 we've completely misunderstood it. And the third year is just adding on a third to what you already would have spent on a mitzvah or maybe given to charity. It would be oh, more like... that's kind of nice. I gave 100, now I give 133. <laughs> oh, I was thinking of it as, oh, this is mitzvah of tzedakah. I was thinking you were saying, uh, you know, if my etrog costs $100, I should donate $33. Well, it wouldn't be to donate, but it would be, yes, it'll be applied there as well. It'll say, I went into the store prepared to spend $100 on the lulav and etrog. I'll pay 130 right, if that's yeah, what it that's is. That's how it feels. That's how it happens <laughs> in the moment. Exactly. Um, so... It ends up getting kind of rejiggered there, but this is one of these Talmudic passages where uh, the kind of the shock <laughs> is more interesting on some level than the answer. Like wherever the answer goes, like it can't be that we are asking people to give up their entire base of savings of assets in order to pursue mitzvot. And again, I don't think that's obvious, right? But that seems to stake out a reading of our passage at the beginning of patoach tiftach, Open your hand. There's a meaningful amount here you have to give, but that's not being read as don't hold anything back. And in fact, like surprisingly, it's not just saying in the in the case of the fifth, it's not just saying you're justified in holding back 80%. It actually seems to say, don't do it. Don't give more than 20%. Again, income, assets, et cetera, what period of time. Uh, it's going to be too much, puts this upper limit. And the concept here, you should really have some savings. It sounds pretty clear when we started with the question of, can I have any savings? It sounds like, yes, actually, you should have some savings. Um, but And we don't have a, a particular number here, I, you know, whether it's like the Rabbi Akiva, like you can keep one water bottle for yourself. Um, but it does sound like it's coming from a place of, so you don't end up receiving charity um, which which kind of makes me feel like, okay, can I have savings beyond what would put me in the realm of receiving charity is unclear. I don't think we've heard that yet. I think that's right. So I want to go to two things. Let's jump off of that. Because I think part of where this question comes from today is we have disparities of wealth now also that would have been hard for them to imagine. Or they imagined them as applying to very unusual figures, um, kings, mm -hmm. other people who were so out of the norm. 
the ability to even talk in percentages without like a graduated tax bracket, right? Or some notion that some people have so much wealth that the percentage is not going to capture what they should give away reveals something that's a little different, I think, from the world we're in. Right. It makes me think of uh, there's a phenomenon, I don't remember exactly what it's called, of billionaires who have signed on to give away 99% of their wealth. And the reason, you know, when you hear Warren Buffett talk about that, he says, I have everything I could ever need. And I've set up my children to have everything they could ever need. And on top of that, I can give away 99% of what I have. Um, and he's not the only one in the club. Actually, there are multiple people in the sort of 99% club. You know, they cannot play the one third game. Yeah, I actually think, I don't know the exact number, but there are hundreds of people now in that club of mm -hmm. that Giving Pledge Billionaires Club. Um, and I think that that's exactly right, right? It really is um, a window into what's happening there. And I think he's pledged to give away 99%. I think to be a part of the Giving Pledge, you have to pledge to give away 50%. That is say a uh -huh. majority of your assets, and some people do more. And it's exactly what you said. It's, I have no problem with saying that I've got to take care of myself. It's just, I have so much <laughs> that even if I give away this astounding percentage of what's happening here, I will be fine. Right. It's actually, it's interesting, right, to then hold that up in terms of tzedakah as a practice to people who really have very little and are giving away a much lower percentage, but they feel it. You know, I gave you that money and now I can't buy myself a sandwich is very different than Warren Buffett gave away 99% and lacks for nothing. Yeah. So there is one antecedent of this in the Tosefta and Pea of this mysterious Munbaz HaMelech, King Munbaz, who is understood to have been like a convert to Judaism. And he kind of appears as like a sometimes a figure in halachic discussions around Shabbat. And in this passage, it talks about how there was like an intense famine. And Munbaz the king, it's that same root, Bizbez Otsrotav. He dispersed and sort of got rid of all of his treasuries, spent down his savings, uh -huh, essentially. Amazing. And people, you know, kind of in his social class, as it were, or in his family, said to him, all of your ancestors worked so hard to set up savings. Yeah. And they added, they all added to the principle. They all built up the endowment. And you just went and spent it all down? Yeah. Now, his answer is, they built an earthly endowment. I've now built a heavenly endowment. They had a temporary, you know, savings. I have permanent savings. He gives them this kind of spiritual religious answer of, no, 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 like the tzedakah, as it were, in sense of righteousness that I have now accrued is way bigger than any of this money. That's interesting. Also, it introduces actually another incentive here that we haven't discussed at all, which is uh, the benefit to the giver. That Because he isn't saying the world is in need. Don't you people see? He's saying, oh, no, being a philanthropist is just a career choice. Right, right. This is great, actually. <laughs> I'm, I'm really setting our family up for glory, just a different kind of glory. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And that's the rhetoric. It's a great way to think about it. Um, I wonder if behind this also is that I don't think Moonbaz was poor on the other end of this, uh -huh. right? In other words, when it says, I think there's a sense of, I used to have... 100,000 bars of gold. Now I have a 100, right. right? Or I have a 1,000 even. Right. And it's been 
Now I'm a millionaire instead of a billionaire. Exactly. Exactly. It's been mivuzbaz from the perspective of the person kind of looking out and being like, but we used to have this much. Now we have this little. I think if we can speak anachronistically, he might be saying that 20% limit doesn't apply to me. (laughs) <laughs> that's not the right way to think about it. I have resources way beyond that. And sure, I'm going to take care of myself and I can still get rid of all of this. You know, it's very easy for me to listen to this and say, mm, this is about the billionaires and how they give. And I'm thinking about Warren Buffett and this is not about me. But it does make me wonder if I take a step back actually and say, what would it look like if I applied this to myself? Like, what would it look like for me, whoever I am on whatever tier of the financial spectrum to give away so much that it would put me one tier down to say, I'm in this sort of social class. What if I gave away so much? Not that I went all the way to welfare, but if I went, if I actually gave significant enough amount that it put me in a different tier. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that could be actually a question that everyone could learn from that as a model to say, that would be significant. You know, that for us, we may say, great, you only have a thousand bars of gold. You have to drop off the billionaire list in order to give away that much money that maybe maybe that is a a bar we could all think about. I think the question of like ambition and what are we securing resources and wealth for and look for a lot of people obviously part of also why they want to secure wealth is for their children or their children's education a lot of time, right? And personally I'm a big believer that like investment in education is not a Uh, is not necessarily to be deemed kind of a illegitimate luxury good. Like those are things that are really actually about giving people tools to be, whether it's just as people or Jews in the world, like to be functioning, contributing members of society. So it's about like, are we constantly asking ourselves the question of what what are we accruing assets for? Um, And do we feel good about that? And do we have to whether it's to remain in this class or have this kind of lifestyle or to bequeath this to our children, just to be thoughtful about it. I think part of what Moonbaz is modeling there is he's sort of like, I don't know, I feel like I'm going to be fine. There's this major crisis. I have to do this. You know, I, I don't know how he's thinking about his descendants there. Are they also taken care of? They're, his 1% of assets covers them. But it invites us to ask those questions. I want to ask, I think, what what we still haven't touched on. I don't know if you have a text that feels like it speaks in particular to expendable income, meaning we can talk about whether certain things are in one category or another. I needed that vacation. I needed my kid to go to that prep school or whether those are in and of themselves luxuries. But what about the money that I know is a luxury like my sports car or, you know, my birthday dinner at that very expensive restaurant that I know I'm not even going to try to justify I needed it. That was just expendable income. Do we have any sources around that? Or like, was that kind of money just like not even in the or was that a kind of money that didn't even really exist for these sources? Yeah, I don't know that there's a clear record on this in terms of what what is in bounds and what is out of bounds. You certainly find rabbinic agadot that will talk about certain families that were profligate in their spending. And, you know, then when the temple was destroyed, they were totally wiped out or, you know, families that... Uh, and the underlying message of that story is it was bad. They I think shouldn't it's have done not, it. I think it's not clear, mm-hmm. right? That is to say, is that just part of a story of 
yeah, look at all this wealth and it was wiped away and it's just a comment on history and destruction? Or is it, you know, a real kind of uh, indictment, right, of a certain way of being? I think it's fair to say that it tends to be in the tradition, the expenditure of resources on what we might deem unnecessary things is not vilified right and left. It is vilified when it is in the context of a need that seems like it is being ignored. So the notion of, at the beginning even of Megillatus there, where it's like there's a party for 180 days, <laughs> is sort of an image of over-the-top like debauchery and this and that. I don't think the critique on its own is just of the wealth. I think there's a critique there, but I think there's then a critique of, and then that same empire is like lifting someone up to commit a genocide. Whereas when Shlomo is like building the temple and there's an incredible number of animals that are sacrificed, like there's no real critique, I think, in that moment. There's a broader critique of the temple in terms of wealth and forced labor and all kinds of things. But I don't think that moment of devotion and sacrifice is being singled out, but in part because just seems like it's a moment focused on spiritual height, spiritual growth, ambition, and it's not juxtaposed to, and then there was this horrible thing happening alongside. Yeah, it sounds like maybe the idea of having savings and spending luxury money is not actually synonymous with greed and heartlessness, um, that maybe it's possible actually to, to, to have spending that is greedy and heartless and also to have spending and also be giving tzedakah and taking care of people in the world. Yeah, the Rambam's famous statement on this in a religious context is when he's talking about Yom Tov and observing and on some level even indulging in the pleasures of the Jewish holidays. Uh, he says, if you go through your holiday and you spend all this money on fancy food and you didn't give anything to the poor, that is simchat hakeres, that is joy for your belly, uh, but it is actually totally corrupt and unacceptable. And that's another way, I think, of understanding this dynamic. He's not saying, why would you eat that much? To be a true servant of God is to just have a subsistence meal. No, right? Actually, part of celebrating, creating community, this and that, is like, you have a, you have a big kiddish, you have a big celebration. But did you also make a donation? Did you also bring someone in? Were there people in your community maybe you could have invited in? That's where I think it's that pairing that actually is the key rhetoric of the system around this. I have to say, I actually find of everything you've shared so far, that last text to be the most useful to sort of say, if you're going to have big savings, have big giving. You know, that maybe that's the answer. How, how much is in your bank account? Well, how much did you give? Um, you know, they should feel somehow equivalent. And then we could get into the numbers exactly. But, you know, it should feel, you know, if, if we really went out of our way this year to spend money on a vacation, we should really go out of our way this year to spend money on Zedekah. Yeah. And I try that at various times. You know, I always try every year and share with others like on Purim. It feels like very contained. You know, I'll be like just how much am I spending on my seuda, on my enjoyment of Purim that year? And my matanot name, the amount I give to the poor, has to be at least that plus one. <laughs> uh -huh. And just like, it's like, that's my budget. Like, so great. You want to spend $300 on a big meal having everyone over. You, you must make a donation of $301 right now. What the numbers are and how you do it. And people give obviously in different contexts. But for me, that's been a helpful way of like getting through Purim question is, how much can you sort of, you know, extend that? Obviously, people do that around Pesach all the time, like ma'ot chitim, gifts to the poor, you know, beforehand, before they know they're about to make all these expenditures. 
I think that's that's an interesting way. I want to add one other dimension, which to me is important. It reflects actually my own struggling with this, but something I think can be very paralyzing to people around this topic. Part of the reason I think this is a heavy topic for many people is because of the world in which we live and the information stream we have coming in around need. People just feel like, but I'm aware of unending pits of poverty and need through my newsfeed, through wherever else I'm getting in. We're kind of flooded and inundated. You know, even what you talked about earlier, like giving to Ukraine. Like in an earlier point in human history, you were sitting in the United States, you wouldn't have known what's going on in Ukraine. (laughs) It just would not have been in front of your face. Now, suddenly we have the images on the screen. One person doesn't need a horse. Actually, everybody needs a horse. And you feel overwhelmed by that. And I think that creates a little bit of the moral and spiritual vertigo around this. People are like, but I'm just like going through the world and like buying myself a pastry. That doesn't feel like a evil act. And yet I just, when I was like pulling up the app on my phone to pay for that pastry, got like a news update, you know, about a tsunami where there's like 100,000 people uh, who are now homeless. And and, and people are holding that, I think, in a real way. And I think part of the desire for guidance uh, comes from that place. The, the other element, I think, I think that's absolutely true. We see so much more need. I also think there was an element of choice that is paralyzing, that even if I decide I want to give away a third of my money, I don't know where to give it or how to give it. And that also stops people. You know, when you hear people giving to charity, um, you know, these billionaires, it's like they can't give away the money fast enough, in part because they don't know where to give it. And I think on the small scale, we have that same problem of, you know, I know that I should give my $300, but but where and to who and how? Um, which person am I supposed to buy the horse for? When it's a more concrete need, you just you see the need and you respond to it. But when there are 10 causes in your inbox at any given moment, how do you know which cause to give to or should you give one tenth to each cause? And we can sort of get stuck in that spiral of thinking and end up giving nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to offer, I think maybe I don't know if it's a creative reading or it's a plain reading. Uh, of the Rambam's formulation of some of this that might be helpful for thinking about how we might kind of split up our our approach on this. I neither claim to be, uh, you know, some kind of exemplar on this. I feel like I'm very much like working it through myself, uh, nor do I know that this is the perfect solution, but I'm in search, right, of some way of talking about it. When the Rambam codifies some of the sources we've been talking about, he says, it's a positive commandment from the Torah to give charity to the poor. And you have to give them what's ra'ui lahem, what is appropriate for them in terms of their need. As the Torah says, open up your hand, right? You got to do that. And you you help them, right, as much as you can. And he then has the following formulation. There's two formulations in the Rambam I want to pick up on. One is, anyone who sees a poor person asking and kind of absents themselves from that ask withdraws from that ask, violates the prohibition of don't clench your fist. Uh So the first thing the Rambam is doing here is emphasizing ro'e. You see the person is part of what triggers this. It's not like an abstract thing of, hmm, I know there's poor people in the world. What should I do? Like there is an actual poor person. You see them. And 
the prohibition on some level is turning away. It's not like you're a terrible person. You violated what the Torah said because you didn't spend all of your waking energy seeking out the poor people. That might be great. But you saw this person and you turned away. That both, I think, is one important grounding thing for like there's this emotional religious element of the Torah is forbidding you from hardening your heart in a moment of confronting someone in need. Right. You're actively ignoring. You're actively ignoring. This in some ways compounds the problem of, but if I'm seeing so much, right, am I violating this all the time? But here's a piece. I I don't want this to be used as an excuse, but I do want it to kind of help ground what's happening here. Notice, though, anyone seeing a poor person ask. And later on, the Rambam comes back to this and says, the poor person comes and asks, says, hey, I used to have a horse. I need a horse. (laughs) Yeah. Then you have to give it to them unless you can't afford it. And all of that is, is built in. And what I wonder if it's helpful, I'd be really happy to hear your thoughts on this, is is that a way of actually breaking down two modes that are both important, but we shouldn't confuse one for the other? Which is, there are the things in the world where people are actually coming to us, presenting themselves to us, not just on an internet feed, in front of our face, or through a direct email or whatever it is, and saying, I need your help. Can you help me? And those kinds of interactions, actually, you are, I think, called to be on the far end of the spectrum of figure out how you help them. Like Mm -hmm. they just asked you. You can't say no. You've got to find a way to respond. Separate from that is I have resources. I'm like Moonbuzz. I look out on the world. I'm like, no one asked me, but I'm seeing things that are going on there. And there I have a responsibility, whether it's at the 20% rate, the 10% rate that's mentioned elsewhere, a third, maybe the giving pledge rate if I'm very wealthy, to think kind of strategically, great. How will I still be okay and how do I give away a lot? But I'm not in the same responsive mode to the human face in front of me asking me for something. I think one thing that strikes me about that is that different life choices will put you in one situation or not. I can choose to set myself up in a life and in a community wherein I walk into a community center. I see the I, my kids go to a public school. I interact with a whole different slew of people, or I can actually make choices in my life, this is just true for me personally, that would shield me from almost Mm -hmm. all of that. And I think of that even in my own inbox, right? When I get an email from a refugee relief organization that says, there is a need, Avi, you have to give, that I could just delete, I could unsubscribe from that list and then the ask would disappear. Or I could put myself in that situation. I could make friends with people who I know live below the poverty line and are going to ask me for rent money. Um, or I could shield myself from being friends with those people. Um, so that, I, I don't know how that plays in. It's yeah. different, I think, than sort of a more ancient concept of like, we live in a village and everybody knows everybody and and interacts with everybody is that we have this, in addition to being able to see everybody, we also have the ability to isolate ourselves. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And I think I'm trying to trying just to piece out a couple things that feel true, even as there's something kind of confusing about charting the exact course here. You know, for all that human beings have changed, we still all have like about 200 people that we really know. Right. Not people who could get our email list, but like 
Well, actually, we know or like we interact with or they meet us in some kind of way that is kind of consistent. That feels like a real divider in anyone's social circle of, I don't think that's infinitely elastic, right? In other words, I, I do not think there are people, whatever we're shielding ourselves from or not shielding ourselves from, who actually know or have circles of dependence of like 10,000 people yes, who are that's going to true, ask but them. I could choose who those 200 people That are. is correct. That Where is correct. do I work? Where do I live? Where do I send my kids to school? Will change the amount of need. A hundred percent. Social circle. And that's what I think is really helpful about your kind of, you know, rejiggering or calibration here. I think the other pieces, and this is why I said it's not, the goal here is not to create any kind of excuse or out, but it's an effort to kind of speak a little more precisely about there is still this obligation, I think, of anyone with resources to sit down and figure out, hey, how am I not going to hoard those resources? And how am I not only going to give to people who happen to ask themselves? But I don't think it's in the same elim enav mi menu. You are like avoiding and turning away in the same way that when someone presents themselves to you, there's there's like a different emotional religious element there. And I think what I'm trying to hold is I actually don't want to lose the Torah's urgency of, hey, that person just asked you for something. Like you have to take full care of them right now and replace it with a completely maybe in some ways more generous, but in other ways, potentially more antiseptic. Like I sit down, I mean, so we do, it's like, I sit down in a way I, I feel good about, but it's a certain like antiseptic thing of we're doing our taxes. I sit down with a sheet. I have a spreadsheet. I have categories. I'm not sure I'm in the raw. We also have a spreadsheet. Not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in the raw moment Yeah. of responding to need. I'm in a different mode, which feels very important, which is I have resources. Again, like Moonbaz. Right. There's people, there's a famine. I have something I could do about it. I better do it. Right. And it's super important. I don't know. Can we hold those? Is there something about the numbers that is about how we do that spreadsheet? And then there's the part that's like, don't talk to me about numbers. This is just about like an actual person right here. I could give one example, I think, um, that felt really concrete for for my family in terms of a, a giving ask was, you know, as we're following so many people who are trying to make it out of Afghanistan and they're and they're going on, you know, to different countries in the world and and trying to take in that sort of crisis on a broad scale feels incomprehensible. And then, you know, our synagogue reaching out to say there is a family from Afghanistan settling in Riverdale. They need this, <laughs> you know, they, they need someone to help them find an apartment. The, that to, to us felt like, oh, that is an element of this crisis that we can understand, not because I actually met the person, um, but because that person is now in my community. That person is now in front of me in the way that you're speaking. Um, and that's maybe a way, presents itself as a way to give that is to the person that you're seeing and the person that is directly asking, um, even though you know, I know that behind that person getting to Riverdale is tons of infrastructure and and emails and giving and the shul deciding to send the email and, and so many different choices that got us to that moment. But in that moment, it feels like this is a person that is actually in your community and they have a real need and you need to step up. Mm -hmm. I feel like we probably made this episode longer than it should be and also barely scratched the surface of all of the different elements of of you know, what 
goes into this calculation. We didn't we didn't talk about, you know, power that comes with giving. We didn't talk about, you know, why Jewish life is so expensive, as was listed in the question. Um, so hopefully this will just be a jumping off point of food for thought. And, and I just really encourage listeners to have these conversations with the members of your household, have these conversations with people in your community um, and see how see how others think about it. And hopefully it will generate some good and meaningful tzedakah in the world. Amen. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. That's H-A-L-A-K-H-A-H at hadar.org. Responsa Radio is a project of the Hadar Institute. Thanks to Jeremy Tabak for producing this podcast and to David Chabinski for recording and editing this episode. The mortician, musician, the bail bondsman and the politician.